Welcome to Product Pathfinders, a podcast where we learn to navigate through the world of product as two beginners sharing our knowledge and experiences while growing a career in tech. Hi, I'm Gemma, your co-host, a product person with a mixed background in both product management and product design. I'm passionate about the entire end-to-end process of building digital products and the strategies that drive the products we all know and love. Hey, I'm Chloe, your co-host, a designer experienced in marketing and branding across diverse industries. For the last decade, I've been on a ride fueled by creativity, curiosity, and a thirst for knowledge. Before we get into it, we need to mention that the thoughts and opinions we express on this podcast are of our own and do not reflect the views or positions of our current employer. I begin today by acknowledging the Turable people traditional custodians of the land on which we are recording today and pay my respects to the elders past and present. I extend that respect to Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islanders people here today. When we talk about tech jargon, I think acronyms are a really big part of that. Uh, People dropping things in messages, like they'll drop it in Slack or Teams or whatever you're using, or they're just dropping it in actual conversation. Like they will say the acronym in front of you and you don't have time to Google it. And sometimes it can be really intimidating because you don't know what they're talking about and they go down a rabbit hole and maybe they don't realise that it is jargon because we've been in this tech lingo for so long. So on that note, I have 10 acronyms that we use in tech I've picked 10 and I've actually picked 10 that I've used recently. So this isn't a top 10 that are the most important. These are 10 that I've personally used. Therefore, it lives in my vocabulary and we could probably like unpack it a little bit. Yes, I cannot wait. Okay. Let's go. Have you, have you had any experiences, Chloe, where do we use, do we use a lot of acronyms or lingo? Yes, all the time. I don't, you do, but you do exactly what you say. You break it down and you have a really great way of making it super relatable to the audience where I've definitely been in the room even today where a sentence may have had like three or four acronyms or just words that I'm like, I have no idea what this person's saying. And then it actually dilutes the point they're trying to make because it doesn't have the impact that they thought it would for everyone in the room. And it comes back to that point where we were speaking on another episode around um, listening back to what you say, thinking of it from the perspective of the audience. Yes. I think that was one of the quotes that I said, I heard someone and it resonated and I still focus not what you are saying, but on what people are hearing. Yeah. And I think when I say... MVP, MVF, a KPI, what's your CAC, people hear words, lingo. What they hear is I know more than you, I'm superior to you. Whereas if someone says let's track some key performance indicators, people go, right, okay, they're speaking on my level or they're not trying to put themselves above me. And I understand that that's not always the case and sometimes it's habit yeah. and the acronyms exist for a reason because they're bloody long words. Yeah. Like I get it. And it's just knowing, and I think it's a skill to know when you can comfortably just rattle things off and it's okay. Yeah. Or when you should take the time and. Yeah, it's bring knowing it down a who's notch. in the room, how that may impact 
Yeah. And to the specific example you're talking about, Chloe, I was in that I was in that room and I think you handled it really well. And I think it can be intimidating to put your hand up and say, I'm sorry, you just used an acronym or a word that I don't know. Can you explain that? And the person had to stop and explain it and I think it went fine. Yeah. They actually didn't mind, which a lot of people don't have the confidence to do that. And I think it was a good example that it's totally okay to put your hand up and go, what was that thing you just said? <laughs> actually, the angle I'll say is it's really important to give people feedback. Yeah. And I'm saying that as the person. If I'm using these terms that you don't understand, I really want you to tell me. Yeah. Like, I want to be accessible. I want... I want to get a brand new person into tech. I want like, yeah. give me that fresh energy. I want to bring you in and I want to teach you and I want you to like love the experience as much as I do. And you're not going to get that if I don't open my doors and give you that opportunity to learn and grow. Like I don't think you're intentionally saying those words to be condescending or to flex or <laughs> I just love saying that, to flex. To flex. <laughs> Like I genuinely think maybe you're assuming the room understands or it has that prior knowledge. So, yeah. Yeah. All right. So let's get on with uh, the 10. These are the 10 acronyms I've used recently. MVP, minimum viable product. So a minimum viable product. Okay, Chloe, pause, say it. I know what you're going to do. So it's not the most valuable player. Oh, you're my MVP, Chloe. <laughs> but no, it isn't an most valuable player, which I think is important to call out that acronyms are contextual. Yeah. So people can be running around going, have you got the MVP? And you're like, we're shipping the MVP. And you're like, who's the MVP? <laughs> I don't remember being stamped. <laughs> <laughs> so a minimum viable product, often called an MVP, is a product that has just enough features to attract early adopter customers and typically validates a product idea just early enough in the development cycle. So the purpose of it is you want to minimise the investment and minimise the risk and typically it's to test a hypothesis. Will this product be successful? Is it actually a viable product? I'm not talking about the technology, I'm talking about the market and you need you actually want to intentionally launch at a minimum you want to release a product into the market as quickly as possible because often time and market is everything. That having a product that does half the job is going to have a better impact on you than having no product and then people evolve with it over time and you can evolve with it. It's also a tool to test an idea with real users before committing to a large budget. So let's say you have a startup company. You might build an MVP, the minimum viable product, and it's the absolute bare bones that you will get someone to pay for it, get it to market. That's how you attract an investor or that's how you at least get feedback. And then you can commit to a large budget and then invest in the right areas and reduce that risk of we spent millions on developing this feature and no one actually liked it or used it. And essentially you learn what the company's target market is and what doesn't doesn't work. So I think it sounds normal in theory that that's what people do. But anytime anyone talks about MVP, we often have to check ourselves. Go, am I delivering an MVP? Or you hear anyone say it's an MVP release? We're seeing an expectation like it is the bare bones. Mm. It sounds, I'm just having 
I'm getting a theme of risk management it written is, in giant marker. It is risk management. And one of the, if you ever hear the term, they say the best code that you can write is the code you don't write. And people say every line of code is tech debt. There is a couple things. There's the risk management of resources in that I've just got an investment of four developers in my new startup. I want to start making money as quickly as possible and risk of mismanaging that, but also just risk of actual like tech debt, right? Which I think is pretty powerful. And I don't know if we talk about it, that sometimes the most valuable features are the ones we don't do because we didn't introduce that code in. It's actually more important what we say no to rather than what we say yes to. And in tech, doing less is the equivalent of doing more. Mm. My mind is just spinning because I'm like, if you applied this thinking or process out loud to certain areas of marketing, it's just like... Quantity. It's like just get quantity. Like ship a TikTok every day. I don't know. And it's Yeah. Just and it's also, it's this idea of being really intentional with your impact the minimum effort is not necessarily a good thing when you say it in marketing. It's like, what do we have time for? This is the minimum effort we can assign to X project. And it's normally has a negative connotation or a negative association with like, this is all we could do. Where I love that in the product space, it's flipped and it's like, actually, no, this is the process to avoid that risk. Yeah. And it's how we avoid doing things wrong. Like we will go into uh, one of our sprint grooming sessions or I'll be talking to one of our engineers, one of our developers, and I'll say, what is the least amount of investment we can take to test this thing? Yeah. It's like science. It's going, let's put a little bit of work in and then we can go and get feedback and come in and make sure everything that basically it makes sure that a developer's resources only on impactful things. So only do the least amount of work and then I can go away and get feedback and then come back and you can do the next most meaningful thing so that every line of code a developer works is impactful. We don't want to waste any code that they write. Yeah, and I can definitely see how this could be, again, a transferable way of or process or way of thinking in other disciplines because – instead of committing to something wholeheartedly and plan doing investing a whole lot of time and effort into something that you're not sure what the impact of that would be. And if you've invested all this time and effort into it, you could negate that risk. Yeah, and often that's the risk that you need to get buy into an idea. Yeah. Right? So I can test something safely and I could say, I think if we did this thing, we would get X number of new customers sign up. So what's the minimum amount that we need to do to test if we could get more customers in, test that. If that didn't work, go back to the drawing board. Let's test another thing. And so I like it because it feels data-driven, outcome-driven. It's a science Mm. um, and it becomes a research tool and keeps everyone accountable to what you're doing. Sometimes it could be quite annoying that they get told what to do and it's like a production line, whereas if they were just do a little bit of the feature, test it, get feedback, then do a little bit more. They're emotionally invested in what they're doing and they're not just feeling like, I use the term code monkey, I hear it be design monkey, where it's like a production line where they go build a, design a website that does this or someone goes build Mm. an app that lets me log in. And sometimes you do do those tasks. Like 
you build an app, you're going to have to do a sign-in page. I'm sorry, you're going to have to do a, a, a security check. You're going to have to just build a button. Like there are some basic stuff that you do, but you can push through doing that basic stuff because you have an emotional connection and you're involved in the process mm. of evolving and the impact of what you're doing. So yeah. being a part of I guess I'm the moral of my story and what I'm trying to say is there is inherent value that perhaps isn't direct in you being involved at a developer level, at a team level, in deciding what is going to be most impactful and picking the minimum thing to do helps keep you emotionally tied and emotionally invested to the work that you're doing that mm. makes it feel more fulfilling. Yeah, that's nice how you wrap that up. My mind is literally racing thinking about if I applied to this way of thinking to projects in the past, like where you would have stopped or started differently. Yeah, and it's hard though because you also can't be looking back on things in the no. past. And it's like it's like your life. We're getting deep, but it's like looking back and going, if I knew what I know now. Yeah, um, so true. There's probably things that you can think of, these principles and these, you know, these methods and apply it loosely. Mm. And it doesn't have to be exactly the same thing. Like, just roll with it, but just keep yourself accountable in the back of my head. Like, am I overbaking this? Like, am I going to have the same impact if I do A or B? Or, like, does it actually matter? Yeah. So, the next item on my list is a very similar vein, and so hopefully you probably don't have to cover it off too much, but you might hear MVF or most valuable flavour. Yeah. It's MVF or sometimes it's MMF. Um, they get used a little bit interchangeably, but it's the minimum minimum marketable feature or minimum viable feature. Mm-hmm. But the idea being not the whole product, but a little piece or feature. Okay. So if you have an existing app, you can't really go minimum viable product, like the whole product exists, but this is the minimum of the little tiny piece of the puzzle. Yeah. And there are some rules that you go, if I'm going to do an MMF or an MVF, it needs to be the minimum that gives clear value to a user that I can go get user feedback. So you might make a design change or you might make a behavioral change and it's going, what is the MMF that I can give to a user? They get value. Something is different and that will contribute and come back to get future iterations. So it may not be a whole product, it could just be a little thing. So again, same on a smaller scale. All right, GTM, go to market. Have you heard of this one in, in marketing, surely? I have, but only since entering the software tech space. It's not, in my experience, something that I've come head to head with. Interesting. Interesting. I'll admit, I don't have a lot of exposure to marketing outside of tech. So I don't know if that's normal or not, but I feel like it is a bit of a tech thing. So GTM, a go-to-market strategy, is exactly that. It is a strategy or a plan on how an organization will engage with the market and with its customers and convince them to buy a product or service. How are you going to launch this? to the world that makes them want to buy it. And typically this is where you might have people who specialize in this discipline. Um, Product marketing is where this really comes into play, that if we went, I'm going to build this feature, I'm Facebook, I'm going to launch Facebook videos, 
they would have a product marketing manager develop a GTM strategy and a go-to-market strategy of how they're going to launch this to their users. Yeah, and how I could apply that to something in my world would be like a campaign, like a marketing campaign or a marketing strategy behind how you're going to deliver a message, sell a product. I guess it's a similar. Yeah, and I guess the reason it has a name or I'm assuming it is a GTM strategy, sometimes it's a once-off thing. Like sometimes you only get it mm. one one big launch. Yeah. Sometimes you might get, or sometimes a, a GTM strategy isn't just a launch on the day, right? It's a go-to-market in various markets. You could have a go-to-market strategy because you're entering a new geographical market. Mm. You know, we're going, oh, we're entering the US for the first time. We actually need a go-to-market strategy that is localized to what the US yeah. need. The next one is something I mentioned earlier was an NPS net promoter score. So again, NPS, and it is an arbitrary score or number. Numbering system, what you choose to use, doesn't even matter. But it's a customer satisfaction benchmark that you create, contextual to every business, how you build your NPS score, up to you, doesn't really matter. But it's just a benchmark of how likely your customers are to recommend you to a friend. I've heard of this one. Oh my God, yes. <laughs> bingo. <laughs> but you said bingo. I was going to go, shot to you. It's a drinking game. And you were like, bingo. And I'm like, G rated. Okay, thank you. <laughs> so, I think, yeah, different companies have different calculations on how they do it. And it's a generally industry accepted way of how you could get quantitative data out of something qualitative. So, what I mean by that is a number you can measure out of an emotion or a feeling. And that's why this, so how happy you are with a product or service. You know, I am subscribed to Spotify. I would have an NPS score of how happy I am. And that's a way that you can get a number or a measurable outcome. And you can compare Gemma is number five, Chloe is number four. We've got to do more with Chloe to bring her up mm. to number five. And so it's just a way that you can get a number or a score or a metric. And how do they collect this data? Because... I'm just picturing when I may have experienced this and it might be like you're using Teams or you're using an app on your phone and then all of a sudden you get a pop-up and it's like, how likely would you be to recommend this to a friend? Or are you enjoying your experience on said app and you rate it? Is that where this might come in? Often there are multiple ways. Sometimes they are surveys. They can come by an email or something, um, a pop-up. Those tools are a little bit invasive though. So mm. it's sometimes I've heard people talk around how people have to go out of their way to get that information, mm. that then it's always going to have a little bit of a bias in only the people who opted in yeah. are probably naturally the people who want to be involved anyway. So they're either the people who are super opinionated or they're the people who are either being prompted to or uh, incentivized in a way. Even if you own a business and you ask someone to leave a review, there is probably a certain amount of people and naturally who have uh, more inclined to opt in and say yes to a survey or something, even if they yeah. are happy. Maybe I am happy, but I'm just can't be bothered filling out a survey. So sometimes there is skews in the data. And so often companies go, every customer must have an NPS. And that's why they often need multiple ways to gather that. They're just a feedback or something isn't the only option. Yeah. And I was just thinking of like, often you wouldn't go and write how great a brand is 
or a company is in a review, you may often more likely do that if you're angry or you've had a bad experience. So then these reviews in this particular context might be all bad if you were just to rely on that one avenue. All the comments or reviews are going to be negative. Yeah, absolutely. So I guess I just want to call out then there's ways that you can either do it by intentionally seeking a campaign. Some people leave it as a part of their experience organically that you must leave a review. Um, Depending on the size of your organisation, sometimes a customer success manager needs to own that and it's their job to seek and get that information because customers aren't going to organically just hand it over. But so it depends. It depends on your strategy. And the idea being that you just have a stand, you have a standardized calculation mm. to get that. Um, and like everything, I also think it's less important to just get it right the first time. It doesn't matter. Having something to work with is better than nothing. Mm. And at least if you have a number, then you can go, oh, the NPS is two. I want to increase it to three. So even if you got your calculation wrong and it was actually in a four, it's more important that it plus one. It more, it's more important that it increased by one or it's more important that doubled yeah. than the fact that it started at one and became a two or it was a two or three. So, What is a good score and what is a bad score? And is, that, is there an industry standard? So typically they are a numbered scores in like a one to ten. Yeah. That's, that's what I've experienced. So a ten being the best, zero being the worst. Mm-hmm. And then, and then it's more going on a percentage base of where 50% of the people in the category of becoming promoters that they'll call about, mm. you know, net promoter score could be anyone above, anyone who hits a five or above, five is actually very low, that's average, but you know, seven mm. or above is a promoter and you want to acknowledge and find those people and go, oh, they're going to be the real drivers of our product. Right. We could, for example market things directly to those because mm. we know that they're the champions of the product right and we do it through maths we could tailor a customer success thing for them and in the same way we could get a collection of people that are a percentage of detractors their net promoter score is low therefore they are detractors and we can position and strategize either at a user level at a customer level or it could also give you a, a view of your entire product mm. and go our product has an NPS average or a score of this. We need to get it to this. And you could then look at how do we increase these people from that. So for me, I go back to my point of it helps you get quantitative data out of a qualitative item. So it's a way to get measures and maths on a thing that's feelings and how happy you are. So talking real world, Mm -hmm. when and how does this come up in conversation? So definitely internally. So in product, it would be how we work with uh, CSMs, so customer success managers. That's an acronym I haven't included, but CSM, customer success manager, and they're typically people who, like an account manager, mm-hmm. but it's definitely a tech term, where typically, not always, but they're less commercially involved mm-hmm. and they're more around driving adoption and increasing the value you get from the product. A customer success manager measures their success by something such as NPS scores. Mm -hmm. They know that they're managing their accounts well because they have a high NPS score. It's only valuable to go through the exercise of establishing uh, a formula and establishing Mm. a method 
if you know exactly what the hell you're going to do with it after. Yeah, because I imagine that if the goalposts keep shifting, that data becomes irrelevant and unusable. And you need to think of a way that you can, like you said, keep it up to date. So you could go stop everything. We're going to do massive interviews, get all of our NPS. That's great, but it's going to come stale real quickly. Mm. So it's got to be activities and ways that you can capture that data and keep it up to date. That's why I mentioned customer success managers because if they are having regular engagements with a customer, they become the owners of that NPS score, right? Mm. So they're like, you're my client X, client X. When we meet, I'm going to update. Something bad happens. We can really evolve and work on maintaining that NPS score for the lifetime. Yes. All right. Now we're on a customer theme. VOC. Hopefully you've heard this one, voice of the customer. Yes. I've never heard it being shortened though. VOC. So I think, I'd, I don't think I say VOC. That's like weird. But <laughs> I, hear, I see VOC written. Yeah. So I see VOC written um, and I guess it's a term to describe customers' feedback and experiences and how your customers' feedback aligns with their expectations. So I've heard it be used in marketing quotes about collecting a VOC, um, getting feedback, but the reason it's called its own thing is sometimes that's more, that's raw material, mm. that it is the voice directly from the customer. It's not researched or it's not an insights or findings that you might get from UX research where you're identifying a pattern. It's just hands off. This is the VOC. It's the voice of the customer. Yeah. Another one, um, look, this is pretty standard talking around a KPI. I think that's super important that hopefully everyone's heard of KPIs before, but something that I really want to reflect on is to an earlier point we had is you can never just assume everyone knows that mm. it is a key performance indicator. And sometimes I find in saying the words, let's set some key performance indicators people remember or get reminded of that's why we say KPI because it's an indicator mm. of something. Whereas if I say, what's your KPI? Sometimes you just think it's the end goal. And me saying key performance indicator sets the frame to go or sets the scene that, oh, that's right. It's to show an indicator of performance. It's not the be all and end all mm. of performance. Yeah. Okay, ours. Um, before I answer this, I'm really curious, Chloe, what has your experience in OKRs been in tech and did you know what they were before working in tech? So KPI, yes. OKR is definitely something I was introduced to in the tech landscape. Hmm. So I think OKR started with Google. Someone could probably like fact check me on that, but I'm pretty sure Google introduced it, mm. which probably explains why it's a tech thing. And it is often an alternative to a KPI and it's just a different way of working. A lot of people have adopted OKR because it's a collaborative goal setting methodology that lets you set that lets you set measurable goals that focuses on an outcome that you achieve. A KPI could be release two podcast episodes. An OKR could be more around establish an engaging audience. So that is the OKR. That is the outcome. And then from that OKR, you break, you break it down levels further and go, how could we build an engaging audience? And then you set your own measures that track. Yeah. Okay. So 
A CAC, a customer acquisition cost. This one is definitely more product ma- management centric. Mm. And so this is something that I look at in product management, something that often happens in general business management. And maybe you won't come across it in design, but if you're speaking with a product manager, worth knowing. So CAC or customer acquisition stands for, it's a customer acquisition cost. And a company's CAC or CAC or whatnot is the total sales and marketing cost that were required to earn a new customer. So then what you do with that number is how much does it cost you to get a new customer? And it's an important metric to monitor because it's something that many businesses try to balance with their retention rates. Let's say it costs me $10,000 in marketing to bring one customer in the door. We go, what's the payback period? If they actually have to be a customer with us for 12 months minimum for us to break even and we've made that money back. Mm. And what that means then is you can set goals and go, well, if they churn, so they, they churn in six months time and they don't hit their payback period, that customer has lost us mm. five grand. So pretty simple. It's investment. It's, it, it's basically taking a step back and going for us to have acquired this customer, cost of acquisition, we acquired this customer, cost us X money. How long do we have to keep them around until we get our money back? So are there benchmarks and industry standards when it comes to CAC? Or like how do you know what's when someone says that is a good price and that is a bad price? There's also a acronym that I haven't mentioned yet that I'm about to get to, which is a LTV, which is lifetime value. Mm-hmm. So that is the value that the customer is bringing for the lifetime to to your business. So typically, you calculate your LTV, your lifetime value, and your customer acquisition cost, and it becomes a ratio more than what the perfect amount is. Mm-hmm. Because if you are selling, how much is a Netflix subscription at the moment? I think it's like, gone up like $16, $17. Yeah, so if I'm buying a Netflix subscription... Versus if I'm buying, let's say I'm buying an enterprise software. I'm buying my, what is my license at Salesforce? You know, my license at Salesforce is an enterprise customer versus my license at Netflix. I'm talking something that's like tens of thousands of dollars, even hundreds of thousands, and something that is $16. What people will do is go, once you calculate the lifetime value of that customer, and the customer acquisition cost, and it needs to be a ratio of typically three to one. You should be making three times the profit that it took you to acquire a customer. Yeah, that's what I was looking for. So the number is three. So the recommended is three to one, but it is a ratio thing. So if Netflix is going to make $16 from you, 16, we're going to do some quick maths, 16 by 12 by five, my lifetime value at Netflix, I'm there for five years, is $960. So I've brought $960 to Netflix's revenue. If my lifetime value to Netflix, if I'm the customer, is $960, if I divide that by three, then they shouldn't be spending more than $320 in marketing ever to get me on board. So again, that's a ratio is different if I'm spending tens of thousands of dollars 
you can obviously spend more money to bring them in the door. So if you are selling an enterprise deal and you're about to make a million dollars on a customer, you need to be making sure that you're going to make three times as much as your marketing or sales budget. So the last, my last point is two, two last acronyms while we're on the note of finance are MRR, ARR. So MRR, monthly recurring revenue, ARR, annual recurring revenue. Hopefully it's pretty straightforward, but in the land of subscriptions, you know, we mentioned earlier around a $16 Netflix subscription. So if my, the MRR that Netflix get from me, from me is $16 MRR, $16 monthly recurring revenue. The ARR, the annual recurring revenue they get, is $192 from me. So the reason they measure it is pretty self-explanatory, but they'll often go into budgeting conversations and we're talking about the success of a product. We'll calculate what the total ARR is for all of our customers together. How much money will we make annually from these subscriptions? And often that, the reason this is different in tech and SaaS and subscriptions is because it's recurring revenue selling a subscription, not a total sale. Whereas if I was selling, if I had a retail store, you go, this was our profit of looking in the past. Mm. We sold $1,000, whereas tech actually talks in the future. They go, we have this contract or our customers are worth this amount MRR because they have a subscription, this amount ARR annually to us rather than here's our sales report like we sold X. So it's a little bit different. Obviously, we still have to say report in this way, but the Uh mentality is a little bit different to talk around the value of MRR, ARR, recurring money that's going to be coming from these subscriptions. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah. So there's quite a bit in there. I don't know if there were any newbies in there or any... Yeah. Thank you, Gemma. This has been extremely insightful and my brain is exploding. Do you feel like I threw a dictionary at you? (laughs) I'm not going to label you like that. (laughs) (laughs) No, you didn't. You just threw a thesaurus with some synonyms and... Yeah. And I'll be a lot more alert. My ears will prick when I hear the words now. Yeah. And also when you hear people say that, I encourage you to call them out and go, sorry, what is, what's that acronym? What's yeah. the, sorry, can you just explain that? And then you'll find out. Maybe a lot of people don't even know the acronyms. They just know that it's an NPS and they know that it's a thing that I do and it's a number and can't define it. This happens a lot, actually. I find, well... I mean, you could apply this to anything, but something like a PDF or like a JPEG or... What does a JPEG stand for? Um, No, but this is exactly right. Like you say it, but you don't know what it is. Joint Photographic Experts Group. Yeah. Now, how many people actually know that? A JPG, they're not experts. They don't have any... Yeah. (laughs) Just a group. (laughs) I feel like this... Don't expose me like that, Gemma, but... Aren't you a graphic designer? But, I mean, case proven, right? You say things and the acronym almost defines it instead of knowing what it actually is. (laughs) Thanks for listening to Product Pathfinders with Chloe and Gemma. If you found value in today's episode, then perhaps others you know might find it valuable too. 
I'd encourage you to think of someone in your network who might gain something from this advice and share today's episode with them. We're super active on all social channels, so connect with us on Instagram and TikTok for more regular conversations between episodes. We'd love to hear what you thought of today's topic and keep the dialogue going. Before you go, if you do want to support Product Pathfinders, the best way to support us is by leaving a five-star review so our advice can easily be found by anyone searching on Spotify. Until next time, bye.